Thank you for joining us, uh, whether it's the first time or you're a returner. Uh, This is the Tabernacle. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and we appreciate uh, the fact that you're connecting with us online. And before uh, we get started uh, today with uh, uh, with Ephesians chapter 2, I just wanted to encourage you. I wanted to encourage you, no matter where you are, no matter where you're watching from or listening from, uh, to be encouraged that God sees you, God knows what you're going through, and God cares. He's in control. He's never not been in control. As I've said before, God is not stressed out. And if you don't have a relationship with God, I hope as a result maybe of this service or uh, the collection of the services is that maybe you would uh, become a Christian. I also want to encourage you one other way. Um, As we've looked at where people are tuning in from, where they're watching from, the numbers of people that are uh, tuning into our services, we want the service to be an encouragement. But we also want to encourage you, if you don't have a church, when the quarantine is over, to find a church. And if you're here in northern Michigan and you don't have a church, uh, we'd love to meet you in person. Uh, So I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I believe that this too shall pass. And we would love for you to try one of our campuses, either in Manistee or in Buckley. Um, And of course, if you do already have a church, we hope that when the quarantine is over, you'll get reconnected with a local body of believers. You can be a Christian and not go to church. um, But as I've said before, why would you want to be that kind of a Christian? Uh, The church is meant to encourage us, uh, it's meant to edify us, and uh, there's nothing like uh, going to a place that knows you by name and where you can meet others in your spiritual journey and be encouraged by them. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing our study, and this weekend we're looking at purpose. If you remember in the very first uh, uh, message here in Ephesians, we talked about our identity, which is in Christ. And then in the second message, which was really a part two of the first one, is how that impacts our perspective. And as we go through this letter, this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus over 2,000 years ago, as we start chapter two, he starts talking about our purpose And really out of all the chapters in Ephesians, chapter 2 is probably the most memorable because it just doesn't dig into purpose, but it digs into God's purpose. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So it was 32 years ago this month that I was facing a huge milestone in my life. I was part of the class of 1988, about to leave Plymouth High School in Plymouth, Indiana, I'd already committed, uh, I was going off to college, I was going to play college soccer, and, and, and I'd already gotten the forms, and, and, and I'd already uh, you know, been in contact with the admissions department, and they'd sent me the form that said that I had to check what my major was going to be. What's going to be my major course of study? And at 18 years old, I had no idea. I just know that I was going to go to college because in my house, that's what you were supposed to do. I knew I was going to uh, be in this dorm and I was going to play on that team. And I knew I had to take 16, 15, 16 credit hours, but I had no idea the direction that my life was going to take. And as I went down through the list of what am I going to check off, finally, I got to the bottom and there were two right at the bottom. One said undecided and believe it or not, the one right after that said other. 
Well, I didn't want to be undecided because I fully intended on dating uh, in college and I knew, or at least I believed in my 18-year-old brain that no girl was going to be, you know, interested in a guy that was non-committal as undecided, couldn't make a decision. So instead, I checked the last box and I wrote mine in, undetermined. It sounded just a little bit more, I don't know, decisive. But the fact of the matter is I had no clue. I had no clue what my purpose was. I had no clue what God's will was for my life. And I bring that up because, you know, as a result of the quarantine, just this week, I was thinking about how many of our seniors, right? Not just here in Michigan, but across the United States, seniors in high school, seniors in college, they're, they're dealing with that same question But at the same time, they don't really get to finish the last few months of school. Some aren't going to get to walk in graduation and have that celebration moment. And that hurts me just a little bit, and not nearly as much as I imagine it hurts them. But but I imagine that they're asking the same question. Maybe for some of us, as we've been in quarantine with nowhere to go and nothing to do, and if you do go in public in Michigan, you got to go out looking like a bandito, you know, all masked up. For some of us, that's forced us to look inward. For some of us, that's forced us to examine our lives. And this is one of the big questions is what is the purpose? What's the meaning of life? If there is a God, what's his purpose in life? What's his purpose for me? And more often than not, You know, I hear Christians will say or ask questions along this line. What is God's will for my life? And we spend a lot of time on that question. We spend a lot of time, some of us in God's word, trying to figure out that question. Purpose is a big deal. God's purpose is an even bigger deal. And as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's important for us to recognize something about God's word. And, and, and the first thing is, is that God does have a purpose. And he has a, perf- a purpose specifically for you and a purpose for me. And we see hints of it all throughout scripture. One of the great things about the Bible is how all of the Bible is connected In fact, Pastor Tim, a few uh, months ago, came across uh, uh, this graphic, and and, and I wanted to show it to you, and and, and it may just look like a bunch of colors and a bunch of lines going back and forth, but this on the bottom is a timeline of Scripture. Everything on this side of the cross is the Old Testament, right? And and that's, uh, you know, the first half, roughly, of the Bible. And everything on this side of this line is the New Testament, And all these little marks are all the different books of the Bible, all the stories of the Bible. And on the top half of the line, we see all of the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So essentially with this graphic, a scholar took it and began to trace all of the different cross-references. Things that were mentioned in the Old Testament that came true in the New Or things that are mentioned in the New Testament that were foreshadowed in the Old. That's one of the reasons we believe there's no wasted words in Scripture. And that all of it is God-breathed and inspired for us. And if you take the time to study it or take the time to be taught the Bible... One of the amazing things is you never fully plumb the depths. I got to confess, I don't know all these lines. But I know somebody does. 
And I know that it was God's purpose to tell this story of what he's doing in human history and more specifically what he's doing in your life, what he wants to do in your life and mine. And so just as an example, all the way back here, I would put it somewhere right around in here in Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel, it's, it's a, a collection of all of the teachings of the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's something interesting that happens back there. Is he has a vision. And I'm not going to read it. You can read it later. It's in Ezekiel 37, like I mentioned. Uh, God says to Ezekiel in this vision, uh, go out son of man, and he goes out, and, and, and the spirit of the Lord leads him to a place, and it was a valley of dry bones, where all he sees is a picture we imagine like this, and God says to Ezekiel, he says, son of man, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel's reply in, in that chapter is, oh Lord, you know, And so he says, preach to the bones, preach to these dry bones. And so Ezekiel does so, and he begins to prophesy and to preach to the dry bones. And it's, you got to read it for yourself. It says, suddenly there was a rattle and the bones begin to rise. I mean, can you imagine that? It's like the Bible. You didn't know the walking dead was in there. And, and, and life begins to be breathed into these bones and skin and sinew are attached And in this valley of dry bones comes to life. And God goes on through the prophet Ezekiel in that chapter to talk about a time when God's spirit would be breathed into dead people and they would come to life. That's one of those connections. If we go back to the to the timeline, that's, that's back here in Ezekiel chapter 37. Then you get up here right before the cross to the time of Jesus, as he's traveling and he's teaching and he's preaching. And what a lot of people don't understand is Jesus prophesied as well. In fact, one of my favorite sayings of Christ, and it's it's prophetic in its meaning, is John chapter 10, when he not only prophesies, but he gives us a promise. He says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Meaning that one of the reasons, one of the purposes that God sent Jesus into the earth, the purpose of Christ coming to us was to bring us real life and not just eternal life, but life to the full right now. It's in the very next chapter, John chapter 11, that Jesus raises the man Lazarus from the dead. And if you remember there, uh, one of the things he says after that amazing miracle where people had, had Lazarus, he'd, he'd been embalmed, he'd been in the grave for three days, and all of a sudden he comes walking out like a mummy, and they take the grave clothes off. Jesus tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. And so as we look at this resurrection series, we see all the way back in Ezekiel, all the way to the time of Christ, we see the dead coming to life, or there's prophecies about the dead coming to life. One of the stories that we didn't talk about this past Easter, but it's, to be honest, it's a story I've never really heard a message on. Maybe one of these years we'll do a message on this, but in Matthew chapter 27, when it, when it covers all of the things that happened when Jesus hung on the cross, 
right? The sky grew dark. Uh, uh, It says that there was an earthquake and it says inside the temple, the veil that separated the people from the holiest of the holy places, it was torn in two. There's just this little kind of a almost throwaway line, although there's no throwaway lines in scripture, but this line that says at that moment, graves were opened and saints who had died came back to life and began walking around Jerusalem. Did you know that was in there? Yeah, most preachers are like, uh, you know, let's get through there real quick. I, I don't know what to do with that. But apparently when Jesus died, dead people came to life. Now they ended up dying later, but we see this thread all the way through. Then we get to the other side of Jesus' death, burial, and his own resurrection. And then Paul, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, this is what he teaches us. We'll start in verse 1 if you have a Bible. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul doesn't mince any words. He just says, before you were Christian, or if you're not a Christian, you're as good as dead. You're a walking dead man. You're dead because of your sins. He, he, he actually says we're children of wrath. Some people don't like that kind of language, but we forget that our God is a God of justice, that he's a holy God, that God cannot abide sin. He cannot tolerate sin. He has to judge sin. And so all of us, unless we are forgiven of our sin, unless there's something that pays that price, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. It says, but God being rich in mercy. Now, this is one of those moments where I'm sorry that I have to be preaching to a camera because I would just go off with a live audience right now on how many times I get excited when you see in scripture, but God, right? You were dead. You were an object of wrath. We deserved it because God is a God of justice. It looks like all bad news, but God, but God. But God being rich in mercy. See, that's part of his character too. His everlasting loving kindness, that he's good, that he's compassionate, that he's the definition of love. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we were all children of wrath, but because God is rich in mercy, he raised us. In fact, it says here that not only did he raise us, but that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We're raised with him because of the resurrection. 
We're seated with him because of the resurrection. Now you might be thinking, well, John, you're standing up right now. It doesn't look like you're seated anywhere. And I would say that's a great observation. Obviously, we're talking spiritually, but we're also talking about this mysterious part of the Christian life where that's as good as done, but it's part of the already, but not yet. So in other words, it's as good as done because there's no wasted words in scripture. I am raised with Christ in the heavenly realms. I'm seated with Christ, but I'm still in this world. I'm still dealing with this flesh, this body. But all of this is because of God's mercy, because of God's grace. And then we get to a crescendo, verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, I'm just going to challenge you right now. If, if, if there's no other verses in scripture, you memorize, memorize those two. I myself memorized them in a different translation. I memorized them in the NIV 1984, and it was life-changing for me. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And if you remember those things, man, you're on your way to some really, really good theology. Paul's also pointing to purpose. God's purpose in how he raised us and the result of that grace, right? So we see God's purpose, but we also see our purpose. But before we can see our purpose, we have to understand God's purpose. And, and, and it's in black and white here. And this is more really good theology, but anyone can get this. If you're a kid watching, you can get this probably quicker than your parents can. If you're brand new to the faith, please get this, right? Before this church or some other church or the church in general uh, starts teaching you on accident any other gospel. And the gospel is this, that we are saved by grace alone and faith alone. Grace alone and faith alone. I know it's weird because this is online, but would you just say that out loud? Because when you say it, it helps you remember it. Just say grace alone faith alone. This is how we are saved. Grace alone and faith alone. This is important for us because this is the essence of the gospel. You see, the world says, do this. That, that, that the way that you're saved is by being a good person. The way that you're saved is by your efforts the way that you're saved is, man, you know, if I'm a little bit of a better person than that person, at least I'm doing okay. But God says, done. The world says, do this. In fact, every other world religion says, do this. God says, done. The world says, my effort. The world says, you know, if I'm getting it right most of the time, the world says, you know, God knows my heart. He knows that I meant well, or that person means well. That's what the world says. God says, no, Jesus meant well. Jesus did well. 
Jesus says, done. That's why it's grace alone and faith alone. In fact, if you've gone through a merge here at the tabernacle or, or, or you've been around for a while, you've, you've, you've heard us talk about, you know, there's several of these statements that end in alone. And if you get the five statements, you pretty much are rock solid in your theology. We're saved by God's grace alone. This means unmerited favor. It means that you can't earn it. You can't pay it back. All the work is done by him. Grace alone. How do you receive that grace? By faith alone. And how did that come about? By Christ alone. That's number three, Christ alone. How do we know this? Because the scripture tells us. So we say scripture alone. And what's the purpose of all of these? For the glory of God alone. If you get those five things, you're rock solid for life. I've saved you a lot of reading. I've saved you a lot of really dense theology books. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, God's glory alone. That's what it's about. And this is what Paul, this is what just comes jumping off the page in Ephesians chapter two is God's talking about his purpose in Christ. The problem is, is most of us can talk a good game about grace, but we don't really understand it. So my family during this quarantine, we, we go on what I call a forced march. You know, we started early on as just taking advantage of the little sun that we've had here in northern Michigan. So not only are we at home in quarantine, but it's dark, it's dreary, it's the, the, the gray, muddy time before, uh, you know, Michigan blooms in summer. But until then, we take them on a force march. It's really just a walk, you know, put the dog on a leash. There's sometimes five of us, sometimes all eight of us, and we've walked all over Buckley, Michigan, right? And on this force march this weekend, we got talking about grace alone. And I found myself trying to describe it in a way that anyone could understand. So just, maybe this makes sense to you. It made sense to my kids, but uh, um, hopefully it'll make sense to you as well. Imagine there's, there's a graduate. So we have a lot of graduates. We talked about graduates. And this graduate's headed off to college. And uh, let's just say that he's working really hard because he doesn't have a car, or if he's a Michigan guy, he wants a truck. He wants his own truck to go to college. And so he's got to raise several thousand dollars, you know, and he's, he's working two, three jobs to make it happen. He's working on a farm, baling hay, you know, maybe he's, uh, you know, delivering pizzas, maybe he's doing odd jobs, I don't know, maybe he's collecting cans, but he's doing his best to save up enough money to get that beautiful Chevy Silverado and go off to college. And his major is undetermined, let's just say, right? He gets to the end of summer, it's August, it's time to go to school. He looks at how much money he's saved and he doesn't have enough. His father sees that he doesn't have enough. And so his father comes in and he says, you know what, son? I'm gonna pay for the rest of that car. Is that grace? You know, I'm looking at my kids who are on the walk and some of them are like nodding their heads. And then daddy freaks out, no, that's not grace. That's not grace at all. That's religion. But that's what some of us have bought into what Christ's grace is. We think, you know what, if I, you know, as long as I show a little bit of an effort, as long as, you know, I'm doing my part, because you know what, I need to help God out, or, you know, I'm going to do most of the heavy lifting, and then he's going to come in at the last, and he'll make up the difference. No, 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 that's not grace. 
That's works. That's not the gospel. How much faith do you need for that? Not very much. Because you've done most of the saving for your Chevy Silverado. And I'm going to tell you, that truck won't get you into a relationship with God. At least not a right one. That truck can't save you. Grace is more like the story that Jesus told. The son that spit in the face of his father and says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And the father gave him his inheritance and then he went and he wasted it on prostitutes and wild living. Spent it all on his friends. I don't know, maybe he ended up in a meth house. And it says when he came to his senses, when he was coveting the food that he was feeding the pigs, that's when he went home. And the story that Jesus told, the story of the prodigal son is when that father saw him a long way off, he ran to him, put his ring on his finger, put his robe on him, he hugged him, he kissed him, he threw a party, he welcomed him home. That's grace. Grace alone through faith alone. You see, when we begin to understand God's purpose, that God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, we have to get that right before we can figure out our purpose. When we understand that, we see how loving and good and compassionate and kind God really is. One of my worst fears is is being one of the pastors at this church is that we have a lot of people that are Christians, but they don't understand grace. Oh, we do a lot of good, but a lot of our good is out of duty, or a lot of our good is because everyone else is doing it, or because someone has should on us. And we're not operating in freedom because we don't really trust. We don't really have faith alone in that grace alone. We have faith in grace, but we also have faith in how good we are. You know, we say things like, well, you know, there's, well, he's a really good Christian. Is there any other kind? What's a bad one? Probably all of us. You know, to go back to that picture, it's Bible terminology when we say dead bones to life. It's Bible terminology when Paul says, you were dead I don't care who you are. If you're a Christian, before Christ, this was you. You were the valley of dry bones. But just like Ezekiel prophesied, the spirit of God can bring us to life through grace. The way Jesus prophesied, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the resurrection and the life. And then we see how all the Bible's connected together in Ephesians chapter two. And it says, you were dead just like this. And your trespasses and sins, the sins you did on purpose and the sins, the trespasses you didn't even realize you were doing. You were made alive in Christ. You were raised with him because of the resurrection and you're seated with him. All of that is God's purpose. I've heard it said and probably mentioned more than once is Christ didn't come into the world and die on a cross to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. To make dead people live. And as scandalous as it sounds, this is what the Bible teaches. 
This is how radical grace is. And so where's my purpose in all this? Where's your purpose? Well, it's pretty simple, really. As you see, I think there's a problem with our question is is we come to the question, what's God's purpose for my life? Or what's God's will for my life? And what we do is we smuggle ourselves in there, don't we? Because it's, oh yeah, I mean, it sounds holy. What's God's purpose for little old me? But really it's about little old me and it's really not about big old him. If you wanna know what God's purpose for your life is, the question we should be asking is what's God's purpose? If you wanna know what's, what God's will is for your life, what you really probably should be asking is what's God's will? And just join him there. You see, what Paul tells us here in Ephesians 2 is that we're saved for good works, not by good works. There's a purpose for making these dead bones live. There's a purpose for, you know, John was was dead in sin and now he's alive in Christ. Same thing for you. And the purpose is we're saved for good works, not by good works. This is why he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is. There's the purpose. But then just in case we get ahead of ourselves, it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we find is they're not our good works. They're his good works. It's it's not our good purpose. It's his good purpose. It's not my good will. It's his good will. I'm saved for them, not by them. You see, this is the part where I smuggle in my works again. You can't do enough to be saved. You can't do enough to be forgiven. The only thing you can do, and it's really just a part that you play, is receive that grace by faith. When that happens, you're saved for good works. And the word for speaks to purpose. Grace is the cause of me doing anything for God. Grace is the motivation. The works are the consequences. The good works are the ends. They're not the means. And you might say, well, what about James chapter 2 where it says that uh, uh, where, where, where that, that disciple expounds on the fact that faith without works is dead. And that's true. If you say that you have faith and you've received God's grace, but your life doesn't reflect it, there's no change, there's no transformation, he's right in saying that faith without works is dead. But you notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say grace without works is dead. Grace lives on and on and on. That's God's doing. Faith is my doing. Faith is my part. So yeah, you can have dead faith, but you can't have dead grace. Man, I better coin that real quick. You can have dead faith, but you can't have dead grace. And when we really understand that, wow, good works become the natural trajectory of our lives. It was John Piper that said that grace motivates us to have a passion for good works. It's not a duty. God is good, I want to be good. God is holy, I want to be holy. God is compassionate, I want to be compassionate. God forgave me, I want to forgive. God gave grace, I want to give grace. God is generous, I want to be generous. 
That's the only way it flows. Anything else is religion. And I don't want us at the tabernacle to create a bunch of religious people. I get it, Christianity is a religion, but let's not be religious. Religious people are forever trying to make the rules and the formulas and the boundaries for how God works. The gospel of Jesus Christ is his radical grace that reaches down and it just blows everything up. It brings the dead to life. Life into dead people that used to be about sin in one trajectory and now want to do good for the glory of God because that's what scripture tells us because I've received Christ by faith. What have I received? His matchless, matchless grace. And when we start looking at the question that way, and and, and if you were hoping that I was going to tell you seniors what your major is going to be, I'm sorry. But I know this, if you've received Christ by faith, the result of that grace that has made you alive points you in the direction of his purpose. You want to know what his will is for your life? Figure out what his will is. What is God doing? What does God want to see done in your life personally and in your family and within your relationships and your friendships, within your school, wherever you go, within your town? If you're an adult, wherever you work, if you're a stay-at-home mom, how does God's grace result into good works in your circle, in your network? God's grace isn't just for when we're all grown up. It's for children right now. It's for students right now, married and single, young and old. Maybe you've never thought about grace like that, but that's what grace is supposed to do. And when we receive it, when we understand it, wow, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. We become attached to a cause that's bigger than ourselves, which I think it's something people are desperate for, for meaning, for purpose. They want to be a part of something big. In Christ, you are a part of something big. And because God is sovereign, His purpose and his will is certain. C.S. Lewis put it this way. You can be certain that God's purposes will be fulfilled in and through you. The question is whether it will be fulfilled like it was in Judas or like it was in the apostle John. God's going to get done what his will and purpose is going to get done. But in his grace, in his mercy, he chooses to use us to be Jesus with skin on, even in the middle of quarantine. So right there, that's the purpose for your life. You're welcome. The bottom line is that your purpose is God's purpose. Your purpose is God's purpose. My purpose is God's purpose. And yeah, we have specific gifts and talents and abilities and, and they're unique. And I don't discount those, but let's not forget the bigger picture. The bigger picture is God's on the move and he's doing something. He, he's doing something within our church. He's obviously doing something within your life because you're tuned in today. He's doing something in my life and in our families and in our children and with our students and in this region God's doing something and he's on the move and he invites us, as Henry Blackaby said, to join him there, 
to join him there. And the beautiful thing is when we do that, the rest of life gets really, really, really simple. But you can't have that if you don't understand his grace. And you can't be a Christian unless you receive that grace by faith. In fact, if you're not a Christian and you've been watching or or you've been watching with some friends or family, we invite you to become one. And as we've said before, there's no certain words you have to say. There's no uh, uh, magic prayer to say. You can simply receive Christ by faith. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and you become a child of God. But whatever you do, believe that it's free. Believe that you don't have to close the gap. You don't have to make up the difference. God sent Christ into this earth to close the distance already. Jesus went to the cross to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And then he defeated Satan, sin, and death by coming back from the dead, the resurrection, so you and I can be resurrected by his power, by his love, by his mercy, by his grace. So as we close, I want to say just two more things. The first is, Thank you for participating with us. The last two weeks, we've had a lot of interaction online. People uh, in the first week were, uh, uh, were, whether on Facebook or Instagram, wherever they were, they're responding with what it was in the sermon that God had for them. And then last weekend, people were texting and emailing. They were emailing me pictures of their little church service, right, in their living room or wherever they're watching from. This week, I want, and this is the second thing, I want to give you how we're asking you to respond. Is as you think about God's grace to you and what God's grace really means, we believe that God's grace moves us in a direction. I wonder if you'll respond again. Remember what we're trying to do? We're not going to, you know, we're not trying to violate anyone's privacy or anything like that, but we just want you to have an opportunity to respond, an opportunity to feel connected. And it's an opportunity for us to know that you're out there and to know what you're connecting with. And so I'm wondering if maybe this weekend you would go online, you would go on social media, and you would respond by completing this sentence, God's grace moves me to, and then you fill in the blank. God's grace moves me to, and I don't know what that is. That's unique to you. It could be a word. You could put God's grace moves me to forgive. God's grace moves me to humility. God's grace moves me to serve. God's grace moves me to give. Maybe it's God's grace moves me to move. Right? God's on the move. Maybe I need to get up and be a part of that. God's grace moves me to take a risk. Maybe it's something specific. God's grace moves me to share the gospel with people or to invest in students, whatever it is, would you share that with us? And I hope you'll be blessed for it and by reading what other people are writing as well. So thanks again um, for being with us and I hope you enjoy the rest of the service and we'll see you next time.